This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, it's Doro, and I'm so excited to announce that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is just around the corner on October 26th at Georgetown University. For our Health Gig listeners, we have a special offer. If you sign up by September 20th, you'll get $50 off your ticket. Just go to AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com and use the code HEALTHGIG. Get ready to create a happier and healthier life story. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Welcome to the BBNR Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Patricia Riley Cook. And I'm your host, Dora Bush Cook. Thank you for listening. We are so excited that we get to do this podcast and help people learn how to take better care of themselves by interviewing thought leaders and experts in health and wellness about their personal health journeys. In this episode, we're talking to Dan Siegel, who is so impressive. He's a psychiatrist, a speaker, the author of a ton of books, the director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA and executive director of the Mindsight Institute. He's actually with us now because we heard him speak and said, oh my gosh, we need him on our podcast. So we waited after his talk and ambushed him and asked him to join us. We can't wait for you to hear his description of the mind, mindfulness, and meditation as mind training, particularly his practice of the wheel. But the idea that the mind is a verb, not a noun, is so astonishing and opens up so many avenues for discussion that we know you'll walk away from this episode completely blown away. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Dan Siegel, and we'll check back in with you at the end of the program. Um, we're just thrilled you're here <laughs> and glad that we came to your session this morning. It was awesome. Well, thank you, Patricia. Thank you, Doro. It's really exciting to be here with you. And thank you for coming this morning. Oh, we loved it. So why don't you tell us who you are, what you do, and why it's important for us to know the work that you do and tell us all about the bicycle wheel. That's how I learned it. It was uh, the bicycle wheel. Yes. <laughs> Yes, uh, who I am. Well, of course, that's a question we all should ask ourselves. <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, you know, the name I have is Dan Siegel, and that means that I'm a person with a name like the rest <laughs> of us, but it also means that I've been working for a long time bringing together different fields uh, to literally integrate these fields from different branches of science to try to bring more well-being into the world, and that field is called interpersonal neurobiology. So I'm trained as a physician and then trained in psychiatry and then trained as a researcher. And then I'm also a practicing psychotherapist. Wow. So with all those different things, uh, mostly what I do is try to bring fields, let's say math and physics and chemistry together with biology, including neuroscience and the study of the brain with medicine and psychology and sociology and linguistics and anthropology, mm. and all those fields and say, what if we had a field of health that drew on all the fields of science? So that's called interpersonal neurobiology. And in a series of books that I'm the editor of, the founding editor, we have at Norton over 60 textbooks now, if you wow. want to read about wow. this. 
that I've overseen the publication of. So there's a lot of science behind the kinds of things we can talk about. But my excitement really is about, in terms of what I do, how to translate that science for practical use in everyday life mm. so people can bring more well-being into their lives, integrating the sciences across different approaches to well-being. Mm. Wow. <laughs> that is incredible. Wow. Where, tell us a little bit about your background, though, before we get started. Where were you born and who are your parents? <laughs> <laughs> Where was I born? I was born in a small shack. No, I was born, I was born in a big hospital um, on Hope Street uh, oh. with B-positive blood. So I'm an optimist. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, I um, was born in Los Angeles. And um, my parents were from New York. And so I was the first Californian born there, and uh, I live there in California uh, at the Mindsight Institute, which is where I work in Santa Monica, mm. California. And we're an educational institution that really tries to bring things out into the larger world. But in terms of where I grew up, I grew up just a little bit east of there in the center part of L.A. Mm. Awesome. So can you start with the wheel? Could you describe to us the wheel and how that works and why that's important and why we need to know about it? Yeah. Well, Patricia, it's really an interesting um, sort of journey, really, where for me as a physician, I was struck at how we never talked about the mind. And then when I went through pediatrics and then psychiatry training, the mind was never defined, even though you'd want parents to help develop mm -hmm. a healthy mind in their kids or in psychiatry, you'd working with the mind. Strangely, that word... M-I-N-D, mind, had no definition. So this drove me to become a researcher. And so in that journey, then it was the beginning of the decade of the brain, um, the 1990s. Um, I think President Bush actually declared it the decade of the brain. Uh -huh. I remember correctly. Yes, he did. Someone you may know, Dora. Yes. And, uh, and at that moment, then everyone would say, okay, we're learning all this technology about the brain. What can we do with it? Now, it turns out Hippocrates, 2,500 years ago, said the mind is only what comes out of the brain in your head. Mm -hmm. And William James in 1890 reaffirmed that. But for me, when I became a researcher in what's called attachment, relationships between a child and a parent, the mind was, yes, of course, a part of the brain, but it was the whole body and also the relationships we have with other people and maybe with a larger world around us. So that started a journey in the 1990s, the early 90s, mm -hmm. to say, could the mind be more than just activity in the brain, in your head? And through a long series of deep dives into the sciences I mentioned, what came out were two findings. One was that when you look at the idea of the mind as being both embodied, so fully embodied, not just in your head, but also relational, you could see that the mind might be what's called a self-organizing emergent aspect of a system of energy and information flow that's both within you and between you and the world. And then if you ask the question, well, if the mind is this self-organizing process, what would a healthy mind be? And it turns out there's an answer from math, applied mathematics of complex systems says that the way you optimize this flow of regulation called self-organization is you link differentiated parts. What that means is you allow parts to be different, like two people in a relationship, and then you allow them to communicate with respect. Mm -hmm. Or you link the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain. It doesn't matter what level of system, 
But that process we can just call integration. And so in the work that I was doing as a therapist and as a scientist, for me, integration, the linking of differentiated parts mm -hmm. was the basis of well-being. It allowed you to be flexible and adaptive and coherent, which means mm. resilient and energized and stable. And basically, it's the foundations for harmony. And so the proposal back then was integration is the basis of health. And then the second big point that came from that was consciousness, awareness needed to be uh, there for change to happen. So then I thought, what if I help my patients, the people I was working with clinically, what if I help them integrate consciousness? So there was a table in my office, and what we did was I had them come off the chair or the couch where they were sitting, come around this table, and the table, if you ever come to the Institute, you'll see the table, it's got a glass center that's clear mm -hmm. and a wooden rim. And I said, okay, picture this as like a wheel, um, like you have a center hub and an outer rim. Let's call it the wheel of awareness so that we're going to differentiate and link aspects of consciousness. And my patients would look at me like I was nuts. Uh -huh. I would say, no, this is, this is how you do it. You put the knowns on the rim, like what you see or hear or taste or touch or smell, mm -hmm. or what you feel in your body or your thoughts and feelings, things like that. Those would be the knowns on the rim. And then in the hub, you have the knowing, mm. the experience of awareness itself so that they could differentiate, make different, distinguish, allow them to be specialized, the awarenessing called knowing from the knowns. Like if I say, hello, Doro, or I say, hello, Patricia, you know, you have both the hello, that's on the rim, it's a sound, right? but you also have the awareness that I said hello, right? Mm. So then you have a spoke that's a metaphoric spoke of attention, where you direct where attention goes. And then we would move the spoke around the rim like you did this morning. And amazingly, people would have anxiety be reduced, yeah. mild to moderate depression would be reduced, mm -hmm. stress would be reduced, even dealing with traumas. So we, we've worked with people in the military, for example, working with traumas has been reduced. I recently did this for the Navy SEAL Foundation, 700 people in a room all doing the wheel practice you did. And it's so accessible, it comes from science. It basically says, hey, if consciousness is needed for change, and if you wanna to change towards health and integration is the base of health, why not integrate consciousness? And it strengthens the mind by building on three things. It strengthens the mind by focusing attention in the first two mm -hmm. segments, opening awareness in the third segment, mm -hmm. and then the fourth segment, you actually become aware of your connections so it opens up a sense of kind intention. Mm -hmm. And research has shown if you do those three things in a regular practice, focused attention, open awareness, and kind intention training, you actually strengthen the mind and integrate the brain and create health in your levels of an enzyme that repairs your ends of your chromosomes called telomerase. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You improve the epigenetic regulators, these non-DNA molecules that regulate gene expression. You actually improve them to reduce inflammation you improve your immune function, you improve your cardiovascular factors like heart rate and blood pressure and, and cholesterol levels, and you have an overall sense of well-being. Mm. So that's what the research shows if you do those three things, and the wheel practice has each of the three foundations of these kind of mind training practices that create traits of health. There's so much science behind mindfulness now that people are hearing about. What have you seen um, 
what effect has that had on people coming to practice, to mindfulness practice? Or is, I mean, have you seen a huge change in that people coming? Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it, Doro? I mean, when these things were becoming clear in science, it was in the 90s mm-hmm. before the term mindfulness was popular and known. Mm-hmm. And the practice of training the mind called meditation was something people thought was a reasonable thing to do. So, for mm-hmm. example, my life partner and uh, work partner, too, mm-hmm. the CEO of our institute, Caroline Welch, she was meditating for decades. And I always thought it was kind of some odd kind of just weird things she just happened to do. And of course, you know, in in a marriage, you find your own differentiated ways of being and then you link. So that's an integrated marriage. So she would do her thing. And I just thought it was a little weird. Mm -hmm. And then in academic circles, I think by my looking deeply at the mind as being, you know, relational as much as embodied beyond just being in your skull, Mm -hmm. I was already kind of pushing the boundaries of what would allow me to be kind of seen as a reasonable scientist. So when people saw a book I wrote where I used the word be mindful in a parenting book Mm -hmm. and said, when do you teach us to meditate? This was way past the 90s. Um, I was a little nervous because I thought, oh, now they're going to think I'm a meditator or something like that. (laughs) So right around that time, I was asked to be on a panel with a guy I'd never heard of named John Kabat-Zinn, who had been uh, very, very effective at taking mindfulness meditation from one tradition and translating into a medical tradition mm-hmm. and a medical practice. And he and I were on a panel together and I said, you know, I've read your two papers and two books or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how mindfulness meditation in its outcomes seems to overlap with what I study, which is parent-child relationships, which is called attachment. So he said, look, you know, that makes sense. And I pointed to the integrative areas of the brain that seem to be activated in both. And he then urged me to get training in the early 2000s mm. in meditation. And so for the first time in my life, I did. Did you do the mindfulness stress reduction program with him? I or? ultimately did it after yeah. I did a week of silence oh, uh, at uh, one of the Mind and Life Scientists mm-hmm. retreats, the first one, actually. And um, John was actually there, but we were all silent, so you couldn't chat with each <laughs> other. But... Um, What that started was a journey of not only being trained in MBSR, but realizing that what the wheel had been doing long before that was parallel to what mindfulness was doing in the medical field that John had brought for those years and for what had been done for thousands of years in a practice I have now just become aware of called mindfulness meditation. So we started a research center called the Mindful Awareness Research Center, but Mm -hmm. we don't just draw on mindfulness meditation. We draw on other practices like Tai Chi and yoga, Mm -hmm. centering prayer. There's lots of traditions that have the idea of being aware of the present moment on purpose without being swept up by expectations or judgments. And that's basically what it means to be mindful or to have mindful awareness. It's having a receptive awareness to what's happening as it's happening. And it sounds simple, but if every culture that we can find pretty much encourages you to do it for well-being, you might ask, well, maybe wisdom traditions all around the planet of all sorts of different traditions, the Christian tradition, the Jewish tradition, the Buddhist tradition, the Hindu tradition, all these traditions have a suggestion, find a way to be in the present moment. So what we've done in our center is look at what 
the scientific implications of that are. And then there are many centers around the world now that have systematically studied various aspects of mindfulness meditation and the beautiful work from Richie Davidson yes. summarized mm-hmm. with Dan Goleman and in a wonderful book, They Have Altered Traits, really summarizes these three pillars of this training. You could call it um, mind training. If you want, you could call it mindfulness, but some people don't particularly take to the word mindfulness. But these three pillars are, you know, um, focused attention. So strengthening mm-hmm. the ability to focus attention. It's like the first two segments of the wheel's rim. Then opening awareness. Mm-hmm. So it's where you're just sitting within the hub and being open to whatever arises. So it's open awareness. And the third one is kind intention, which is realizing yeah. we're all interconnected with each other. And so, you know, seeing, quote, another person and being kind to them is actually a way of being kind to, quote, yourself. And I'm mm-hmm. putting quotes around these because mm-hmm. actually when you get deeply into these words, you realize the words sometimes trap us in a prison. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I much rather refer to the location of these things. So you want to have like an inner sense of kindness and an inter-kindness. And when you start realizing that, amazingly, people start feeling a kind of relief that the separateness they've been feeling, which really leads to all sorts of mm-hmm. very painful things, yes. including sometimes people feeling meaninglessness and disconnection mm-hmm. and sometimes getting suicidal because it feels so meaningless. But when they realize, oh my God, I'm not Dan, who's just in a separate body. I'm also mm-hmm. Patricia and Doro and everyone else we connect with and who we are is like a plural verb yeah. rather than a singular noun. Mm-hmm. And then when people start to embrace that, not even like, oh, I want to figure out what this guy is saying. How weird is that? But they actually, they feel it. Mm-hmm. There's this in relief, like, oh my yes. God, finally, we can realize we are all truly interconnected. Mm-hmm. And it's, and you probably felt it in the end of the wheel practice where it isn't even just like, let me try to um, imagine the interconnections we have. It's more like, let me open up to the interconnections that are actually there. This podcast today has been brought to you by Ignite Coffee. We developed a proprietary mixture of specialty-grade coffee beans, an amazing blend of anti-inflammatory spices, including turmeric, cardamom, cinnamon, mache, and anche chiles, so you can do more than just wake up in the morning. Order Ignite Coffee at www.bbrconsulting.us. Enjoy your coffee and ignite your life. Wow. You know, you said it this morning and you said it now that, um, I think this morning you said the mind is a verb, not a noun. And did you just say our bodies are not a a noun but a verb? Well, in a way that is true. The Mm -hmm. body is all sorts of processes, you Mm -hmm. know, and the cells are always turning over and that kind of thing. And um, in terms of the mind, what's so interesting about the mind and, um, you know, it's so fascinating. Of course, this has been something I've been like obsessed (laughs) with for about 25 years. But if you say Hippocrates may have had part of the truth, that the brain and the head contributes to the mind, let's say it that way. He didn't Mm -hmm. say that. He said it's the only source of the mind. And then William James basically said the same thing, that the father of modern psychology in James's case Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine. So we've had in medicine and psychology kind of a sometimes implied, but sometimes outwardly stated mind is brain activity related to feelings, thoughts, Mm -hmm. and behavior. So 
in this view, mind becomes fully embodied. And as a verb, then it, yeah. it, it's in your whole body. But then what, what I've been trying to suggest in this field I'm in, interpersonal neurobiology, is that, yes, you have an inner, that's the personal side, mm -hmm. but there's the betweenness. And you may say, well, wow, how can something be both within and between? It's two things, isn't it? Two places. And, you know, so for me, it's, it's actually one thing. It's energy and information flow, which can be studied. And the skull and the skin are not barriers to that flow to happen. So when you start really looking at this scientific suggestion of where the mind arises from, Number one, you realize it's a verb, not a noun. Mm -hmm. Number two, you realize it's both inner and inter. One thing, the mind, mm -hmm. is both within your skin and case body beyond just the skull. So that's kind of makes some people go, whoa, that's kind of weird. <laughs> but the other thing is it's between you. So being kind and caring and compassionate mm -hmm. to others is, in quotes others, is that's actually funny. just who you are. And so you, you're compassionate not because someone told you to do it, but it's just like, you know, if you bumped your hand on a sharp object and you rubbed it to feel better, that's what you do, quote, to yourself, your body self. But other people's bodies are yourself in the sense that we are all deeply interconnected. So compassion becomes a natural way of living. Wow. Mm. And that's why when you describe the inner searcher, what, what was it, the words that you use that you didn't think The was inner it? compassion yeah. and yeah. the intercompassion. Yeah. Right. I, it, I, I think these words... You know, I mean, we use them and we don't mean harm by them, but they create harm. Like, like saying, oh, it's all about yourself. Okay, well, actually, the deepest notion of self, that is your identity on this planet, in this life that you're experiencing. Notice I didn't use self in any of those things. Right. If that's what you mean by self, it's happening in your relationships with other people and nature, too. Mm -hmm. So if... If wow. children were raised to realize the, the truth that, in fact, the children next to them who have different color skin, different religions, different genders, if we could realize that living beings, not just people, but nature is a part of who we are, think about how children will find meaning in their lives, connection in their lives. And those two things, meaning and connection, if you go all around this planet, which you know, I get the opportunity to do just because I'm an educator now. Mm -hmm. um, and I talk to people about, you know, what really matters in life and what really matters for your health mm -hmm. comes down to those two things, mm -hmm. meaning and connection. And even if you look at very carefully done scientific studies about what is going to be the best predictor of your medical health called your health span mm -hmm. or your mental health, you know, your psychological well-being mm -hmm. or how long you live, literally, Long, your longevity, or how happy you are. It's your relationships, supportive relationships. Wow. So for me as a scientist, I say, look, to just put the mind up in the head is actually not very scientific, even if scientists primarily are saying that. Right. So this is where the idea of selfing or this verbs of a self needs to be a plural verb, right? Yes. right. It's happening within... Each of us here, the three of us talking to each other and everyone listening to us. Right. Dan, but people say, well, you you know, you're on the airplane. You have to take oxygen first for yourself before you can help others. What do you say about that? You have to take oxygen for your inner experience and care for your inner experience so that your inner experience will have lots of energy and resourcefulness mm -hmm. and resilience completely. Mm -hmm. And you should enjoy your body. 
Right. You know, this body is great. You should enjoy yeah. it. You should feed it. You should sleep your body really well, give mm. your body great nutrition, exercise your body. Mm-hmm. So no one is taking the body away. What we're saying is mm. the brain is important. Mm. The okay. whole body is important. Your relationships are important. They're differentiated aspects of your one mind and your one reality of life. Right. When I was doing a little research, I read about the healthy mind platter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, based on the USDA food pyramid. That's right. Tell us about that. Yeah. So David Rock and I, a colleague, got together and we said, hey, you know, the U.S. Department of Agriculture is coming out with a new platter for what you should eat. Right. So we said, Mm -hmm. why don't we summarize the studies on what's called neuroplasticity, which is a, a part of neuroscience that studies how does the brain grow in response to experience? So then we basically summarized that and made it accessible in this nice little image. You can go to my website, drdansiegel.com, and you can turn it into a poster, whatever you want to do, you know, because we made it for people to use in classrooms and clinics, wherever, you know. So what the platter basically says is let's take the science of a healthy brain um, and let's turn it into, you know, the seven daily things you should do, and people can do them in different amounts each day, but they include very simple things. You, know, you probably have them right there, mm-hmm. you know, for time, taking time to sleep, mm-hmm. one of the most under focused things and critical things. Absolutely. Sleep is a time among many, many things. You're integrating the knowledge that you've acquired during the day, mm-hmm. but you're also cleaning up the inevitable toxins that your brain secretes inside the skull when it's busy, 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 active. It's kind of like a person who's hosting a party. There's a lot of stuff left over from the party. Well, if you're the host of the party, or, you know, you don't try to clean up when you're engaging your guests. So that's when you're awake. So when the guests leave, okay, now you're in a different mode. You're in cleanup mm-hmm. mode. That's what sleep is. And you need mm-hmm. somewhere between seven and nine hours. You know, like I realize I'm more like an eight and a half to nine hour person. And realizing that and giving myself the respect to give my brain what it needed rather than having my alarm clock tell me when to wake up. I set my alarm for when I'm going to go to bed, right? Because then I say, yeah, this is the most important thing Mm -hmm. is when getting those hours. So it's the cleanup time. And basically, if you don't get enough good quality sleep, you're poisoning your brain. Mm. I mean, I'm not just saying that like poetically. I mean, literally, the, the toxins that are secreted during active, healthy living day need to be cleaned up with sleep. Right. Wow. You know, so and how does that manifest itself, poisoning your brain? I mean, is it that- manifests itself, if you haven't got enough sleep, especially for long periods of time, decreased attention, mm-hmm. decreased memory, increased irritability, less capacity to be resilient in the face of challenges. And then as it goes on and on, basically you're not consolidating the learning, but you're also then accumulating all these toxins, which, you know, unfortunately... Some studies, I don't want to freak people out, but some studies are suggesting that it leads to long-term damage to the brain, you know, that can be forms of dementia, for example. So wow. people are really saying we've really, now that we understand at least one aspect of sleep, we need to put a lot of attention to it. just like we would to nutrition or exercise. Right. Sleep needs to be up there, and that's why it's one of the seven on the healthy mind right. platter. The others are, you know, move your body around, you know, mm-hmm. exercising really right. important. And if you're limited, get some movement around, just don't be so sedentary, you know? Right. So that's number two. Um, there's also time for 
focusing attention where you're really, you know, focus time, you're really zeroing on something. And at the same time, there's also time for just downtime Mm -hmm. where you're just letting yourself just let your mind wander. That's healthy and a healthy time for creativity. So I think that's floor. We have sleep, active, Mm -hmm. focus. We have downtime. Then there's playtime. And I don't mean just being on a competitive sports team, you know, but a, a time when you're really goofing around and not being judged for mm. winning or losing, letting creativity arise. It can be by yourself or joining with other people and just playing. Yeah. We, especially as adults, you know, we, we give that up a lot, right? right? And then the two other times are one are, are connecting time, connecting yep. with other people on the planet, with nature, mm-hmm. very important, with other people, very important, especially when people are like addicted to their screens, right. they're losing this connecting time. Mm-hmm. And the, the seventh one is, is something we've been talking about, which is called time in, you know, mm-hmm. which is where you take time to reflect inwardly, however that feels right for you. It could be moving and doing that, or, you know, when you're mindfully walking your dog, instead of, you know, busy being on your phone, just be aware of your steps or just take in the sights that are there and just be aware of what's happening as it's happening. That's basically what being mindful is. Time in is a great phrase because we so often have time focused outwardly. You know, you read the paper, let me do this, let me do that. But time in is just a way to remind yourself, oh, I see. It's reflecting inwardly. And that's the crucial aspect of it. And those are the seven things. And listen, this is what science tells us, those seven things. Mm. And we put them on a healthy mind platter just so you can see it. But it just comes from science. We didn't invent those things. No, right. We made up the fun little you know, diagram. Mm-hmm. But, but the bottom line is it's a science-inspired platter, a menu. You know, like mm-hmm. say, okay, Dan, you know, what does science tell me I should do every day? Well, those are the seven things you should do every day. Mm-hmm. And, of okay. course, there's nutrition. Now, we didn't put it on because the whole thing was a, a nutritional plate. But of course you should eat well, but right. it's not like a mind thing per se. It's something you should do absolutely as a part of that. Right. right. Um, when we were doing, when I was looking around, you have written so many books. <laughs> How many books have you written? I and think, um, like, I think it's about a dozen and I've edited, you know, I'm the founding editor for over 60. Wow. That's yeah. incredible. If you had one of your books to someone who is interested in learning about what you do, your research, um, the wheel, the healthy yeah. mind platter or whatever. Right. Well, the best book would be Aware, the Science and Practice of Presence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, that book is in its final stages. So it'll be out soon, you know, but but before that book, I would say either Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human, which is a pretty deep dive into this stuff, so you have to mm-hmm. be ready for it. If you want a lighter dive, mm-hmm. it would be Mindsight, The New Science of Personal Transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and if someone's a professional, it might be The Mindful Therapist. Um, and if someone's like a graduate student or like a researcher, it would be a book called The Developing Mind, How Relationships and the Brain interact to shape Mm. who we are but that's like a super serious graduate (laughs) textbook and you know it's funny because each of these books because i have a ton of parenting books too like brainstorm or parenting me inside out you know some of them i've written with other people but if you're a parent those parenting books whole brain child and no drama discipline the yes brain those would be um books to look into for parenting 
Wow, lots of reading to really? do. Just yeah, amazing. but do them one at a time. I wouldn't read yeah. all of them. <laughs> so I guess uh, one last question. You you know, sitting here listening to you, I'm getting so energized. And the passion and excitement that you have for what you do is just incredible. And no. and I think we're just so benefit from from your major enthusiasm and your alignment into what I think you're meant to do. It's well, that's so sweet. Thank you. I mean, I, you know, please come to our website, you know, drdansegel.com. And, you know, there's so many different communities that we work with. I mean, we work with, you know, recently, just a couple of days ago, I was with the Navy SEAL Foundation. I've worked with other military groups. You know, I work with different government agencies, um, different organizations, nonprofit and also corporations, you know, work with lots of school systems at the superintendent level and then at the individual school level and then the classroom teacher level. Sometimes I even go into schools. Recently, I I did this um, uh, in Jackson, Wyoming, where I taught all of the high school students for the entire city. And it was mind-blowing i mean to be with them together and then i then they let me teach the community and then i taught all the teachers and so you can do community-based interventions and you know then we work a lot with um you know people who are in the mental health field uh, mm. and, uh, and medical fields you know so so there's lots of different what, what's so exciting about this moment of all of us working together in this including the wonderful work you're doing is you say well we now have like this integrative science of well-being called interpersonal neurobiology that forms a foundation for the application of this in different worlds. So integrative health, for example, can build on that. And then if we all work collaboratively as a MUI, you know, this integrated Mm -hmm. identity of me plus we equals MUI, together we can really bring more health and well-being into this world, you know, which means making a more compassionate and Mm -hmm. a kinder world. This Mm -hmm. This is what really comes all together. And it's inner and it's inter. And this is a really turning point, I think, in all these fields, actually finding a common ground and moving the world forward in a positive way. Mm. Thank you. And thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. And we're glad you like our peanut butter balls. (laughs) (laughs) I'll make sure you get that recipe. They are delicious (laughs) and healthy for you. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>